The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to this week's episode of Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know and Doesn't Have Time to Tell You. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. Welcome back. Thanks for listening this week. How are you, Lindsay? I'm great. Good, good. Sounds like we uh, both came off busy weekends here and excited to have a special guest on today. Right. I think it'll be really uh, great for the listeners out there to hear what um, Dr. Jean Marie McGowan has to say. She's an internal medicine physician with a special interest in women's health. She attended the American University of the Caribbean for medical school and completed internal medicine residency, where she served as a chief resident at the University of North Dakota in Fargo. Dr. McGowan started working for Sanford Health in the summer of 2016 with a focus on improving women's health care. She became a certified provider for menopause management by the North American Menopause Society and became a fellow of the American College of Physicians. She is director of the Pelvic Floor Clinic and co-director of the Preconception Clinic. In addition to seeing consults for menopause, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and post-breast cancer treatment, she's a primary care physician. Dr. McGowan is associate faculty for the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and clinical director for the Women's Health Rotation for Medical Students, Residents, and Fellows. Dr. McGowan is also involved in research and won the inaugural Faculty Research Mentor of the Year in 2019 from UND Internal Medicine Residents. It's great to have you here, Jean Marie. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So usually when we have a guest on, we like you to do just kind of a one or two liner about yourself. Sure. So I'm Jean Marie McGowan. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, and I uh, lived in a few different places like England and St. Martin, which is a beautiful island. Uh, And now I live here in Fargo, North Dakota, and I really enjoy it. (laughs) That's awesome. And an interesting journey from St. Martin up to Fargo. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I imagine at this time of year, you notice the difference. I do miss sun. (laughs) Yes. Well, today we have a great topic. We're talking about menopause and uh, really diving into some of the details around menopause. So let's go ahead and start with kind of defining what we're talking about. Sure. So menopause uh, means like the last um, menstrual period. We can only Uh, say that it's menopause a year after you've had it. So you cannot have any menstrual bleeding um, for a whole year before we can say you've been through menopause. So the few years, two to four years before that time is called perimenopause. So P-E-R-I, menopause. And then after that time is called postmenopause. When do, and of course we're talking about women today, being talking about menopause, so when can most women expect to go through this? Sure, so the average age of menopause in the U.S. is about 51 or 52, give or take one or two years. So there are women who need their um, ovaries removed for whatever reason, um, either cancer prevention or cyst or mass 
Um, and so sometimes we call that surgically induced menopause. They would need both ovaries removed. Um, so that can happen at any age before the age of 50, 52. Um, what, a, what would you call the, um, early menopause? So early menopause means that women have symptoms before the age of 40, and that's called premature ovarian insufficiency. So no more ovarian failure. It's called ovarian insufficiency. Um, I don't see too many of those, but they're out there, and um, they definitely need to see a specialist if that's the case. That would be actual the year since you've had bleeding prior to the age of 40. Correct. So it does not include maybe starting the perimenopausal symptoms before the age of 40. Correct. Okay. And jumping back to surgical menopause for a moment. So that's a little different because it occurs very abruptly. Correct. It happens as soon as they take it out almost. Okay. Uh, Women will have symptoms. And so are the symptoms similar even though they might come on a little more quickly than what somebody going through natural menopause would experience? They could be more severe, more pronounced, so worse hot flashes. Um, They're more frequent. Um, And uh, we have to worry about bone health. That's a big issue. So um, if if it's appropriate to put a, a woman... Um, on hormone replacement therapy, um, we should. Otherwise, we should treat their symptoms um, with other medications. They sure. will probably need it. And you're saying it's when it's appropriate to treat with hormone replacement in somebody with early menopause. Is that correct? With surgically induced menopause, sure. yeah. Um, premature um, ovar- premature menopause, we'll say. Uh, yes, they could need hormone replacement therapy as well. It really depends on the cause. And so can you tell us a little bit more about symptoms? I guess let's start in the perimenopausal time frame. What could women expect then? Sure. So, you know, every woman is different. So some women experience more symptoms than others. Um, I've had um, many women might not have any symptoms whatsoever. I guess they're the lucky ones maybe. Right. Um, but some women can experience symptoms up to two to four years before their last menstrual period. The symptoms might get more frequent or severe as they get closer to that menopause stage. And then it can last for about two to four years after. There are, again, those lucky ladies who are, it can last longer. About 10% of women might have hot flashes um, longer than uh, 10 years after their last menstrual period. The most common symptom for menopause is um, hot flashes. Some people call them hot flushes um, if you're in Europe or Australia. Um, And then we in the medical community can call them vasomotor symptoms. So um, that's vasomotor symptoms and it's VMS for short. And can you describe what happens with those symptoms? Sure, so what happens is our, our body temperature rises really quickly within a matter of one to two minutes. So it really feels like a flush. Your blood vessels are dilated. Um, You feel very hot, very sweaty. Um, Some women can have more sweating than others. Um, And then your body temperature drops within one to two minutes. Um, And it drops like two to three degrees. So it actually causes shivering most of the time. So it's not just a feeling of, oh, I feel warm like all the time, it's actually you 
have an increase in temperature very quickly and then a decrease in temperature very quickly. And so you can feel hot for about five to 10 minutes before that um, temperature decreases. And are there other symptoms that we commonly see in that perimenopausal time? I think hot flashes is probably the one that we hear about most from patients. Right. It's it's the most bothersome one for sure. So um, menopause is also a loss of estrogen or a decrease um, in uh, a woman's time. It's really a, a marker of a new stage of life. So and estrogen receptors are really everywhere in the body. So um you know, sleep changes can occur. Um, some women feel like their sleep patterns might change. Um, memory um, may be changed a little bit. Some women say that they, during menopause, they have like a little bit of brain fog. Uh, not uncommon to hear that. Typically goes away if it's related to menopause itself. Um, vision changes. We have estrogen receptors in our eyes, so we can have a decrease in uh vision acuity, um, hearing changes as well, and skin changes too. So, um, you know, women, pregnant women have that glow about them. Well, menopause, it's very, it's the opposite. Um, skin changes will occur. So, um, and it can be more pronounced if you're a smoker for sure. So, um, skin can change, hair can change, uh, because of that loss of estrogen. So would you say more dry skin? Yeah, less elastic. Also, um, vaginal dryness is the next biggest. So hot flashes is a big complaint, and then vaginal dryness um, and urinary tract issues tends to be the next biggest complaint. About 60% of women postmenopause will have issues. And this is one that actually doesn't really go away after menopause. So with hot flashes, you might have relief um, after a few years, but the vaginal dryness, that may get progressively worse with each year. Some women, it doesn't bother them, but for some, it can be quite um, an issue. Does that generally start kind of in that perimenopause period, or do you usually not see those symptoms until postmenopause? Some women just have these symptoms far worse before, but usually it's after menopause. It also depends, too, if a woman has had babies before, if she's sexually active, if they're using any kind of products that could be irritating, stuff like that, or medications. Medications is a big culprit, too. Sure. And I hear often women uh, kind of postmenopausal, perimenopausal complain about a change in odor. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, so the, the vaginal pH does t- change a bit, again, because we lose that estrogen. So um, we're losing the cells that create that lubrication. So it does change the pH. They might have a change in odor. doesn't mean you need to do anything unless it's really bothersome. And the pH is that acid-base balance that's naturally present in the vagina that um, can change and shift a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think with the pH changes, the there's a change in the bacteria that normally live with us, which can affect that as well. That can occur as well. And, you know, there's a lot of products out now that um, market for probiotics. Um, none of the research has shown that the probiotics aimed at vaginal health uh, work. Right. And I, I also think with that odor, a lot of people start trying perfumed products or douching and those kinds of things to help that odor. And what would your comment be about those kinds of things? Don't do it. (laughs) 
the body is very good about cleaning itself. So really just just water is all you need. And if there's other things going on, if you're having a discharge or anything, go see your doctor. Maybe you have like bacterial vaginosis or some or a yeast infection that needs to be treated. Um, but don't don't use the products without talking with your doc. Yeah, I've actually heard of patients using um, essential oils to try to help with the odor and getting chemical burns down below, which I think would be rather uncomfortable. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, don't. My uh, teammate, Amanda, who's a nurse practitioner who works with me always, um, when educating about this, likes to say that you're your vaginal area is like a self-cleaning oven, which I always thought was a unique way to describe it, but it's true. Yeah, it's it's very true. Avoiding hot water too, like some women I know like to take long baths. Um, that could be very irritating too. It will dry the vaginal tissue out a little bit more. Um, using those like wipes uh, too, uh, like cottonelle wipes uh, after you have go to the bathroom that could be irritating a lot of women use um pads to you know prevent that uh, or stop that leakage uh, which can be an issue during menopause as well or be more pronounced anyway Um, and those could be irritating if it's if maybe they're allergic to that particular material that they use for the pad so if you don't need to use any pads for leakage don't use them any more of those that are more hypoallergenic than others? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I can't say for sure. I think whichever works uh, for each woman is might be a little bit different. I know they are some that have perfumes and things in that probably should be avoided. Oh, sure. Yes, I agree. Don't use perfumed ones. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that too, though, for menstruating women. So Right. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about symptoms, and I think we'll circle back to kind of how to manage these symptoms in a little bit, but can we talk about how is menopause diagnosed? I get a lot of questions in the clinic about, do we need to test hormone levels? How do we for sure say it's a diagnosis of menopause? Great, great question. So generally, no, we do not need to test any hormone levels. This is really a clinical diagnosis. We're going to go by oh, you're 49 years old and your periods have become more irregular. You're probably perimenopausal or you're 50 and you don't have any more. You're menopausal. Um, So we don't need to do hormone levels. We don't need to test estrogen or testosterone or DHEA. Um, I might test a thyroid if there is a family history or other symptoms going on. But other than that, I don't generally do any blood work. Um, now, if you're under the age of 40 and we're thinking about premature ovarian insufficiency, then yes, we're, that, that is warranted. But that, um, those women should see an endocrinologist after talking with their primary. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Thank you for that clarification. Let's talk a little bit more about the different areas that the the lack of hormones affects. And and I know one in particular um, would be the bones. Yeah. So um, estrogen's really good about keeping women strong. So during menopause, when we when we lose that estrogen, the bones get a little bit weaker and we have less protection there and also with the blood vessels. But for, for bone health, um, that's when we um, 
you know, 10 years from your last menstrual per, uh, period is probably when we're going to see the results from losing estrogen. So that's why some of those guidelines say do a bone scan around 60 or 65, because that's around 10 years after menopause. Um, unfortunately, you know, what you do at 50, 40 and 50 is actually what's going to influence that bone density when you're 60 or 65. So, um, so it's really important to address that before you hit menopause. Right. And so things like not smoking, alcohol in moderation, mm-hmm. weight bearing exercise, enough calcium and vitamin D. Right. So that's all important to do before you even hit menopause. So and if you're menopausal now and you haven't been doing that, well, now's the time to start. It's not too late to at least help things along, even if it's, you know, worse than you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just making sure you get that bone density scan or DEXA scan um, approximately 10 years after you've gone through menopause or 60 to 65. So that 10 years after menopause is also important in regards to cardiovascular health. So um, what happens is uh, women's cholesterol tends to be a little bit more uncontrolled or more unfair favorable about 10 years after menopause. So estrogen was kind of regulating all of our fat levels and, uh, you know, lipoprotein density, um, our LDLs and everything, uh, triglycerides tends to regulate that. But um, 10 years after we've kind of, we see the result of not having estrogen anymore. So, um, that's why at 65, the number one killer for women is heart disease, not breast cancer. Um, so again, what you do in your 50s is going to be really important for your 60s um, and so forth. So um, we see a big increase in heart disease about 10 years after um, uh, the last menstrual period. And kind of aside from the things we've talked about, like exercise and diet, is there anything else that women should be doing to help kind of lower that impact of cholesterol at around 65? Yeah, so definitely healthy diet, regular exercise, cutting back on that alcohol. Um, I think the American American Heart Association recommends no more than four servings of alcohol for women in a week. Um, We just metabolize it differently than men. So um, quitting smoking, Uh, And then we can talk about hormone replacement therapy, too, if it's appropriate uh, for you. Let's talk about the effect of menopause on mood, because I hear a lot of patients coming in in that perimenopausal or early postmenopausal period, really noticing changes in mood. Um, What is typical? What what should they expect and what's maybe outside the normal? Sure. So there are... um, at the time of perimenopause and menopause, there are variations in our hormone levels, and we're finding a lot out uh, about progesterone and estrogen and how this affects mood. We know that there are women out there who have premenstrual dysmorphic disorder where they get really angry, crabby, or sad around their period. Um, there are also postpartum depression is a huge issue after having a baby. So we know that hormones play a role in mood. Um, 
so it's it can be hard to tell the difference um, at the time of menopause um, because women can experience more um, symptoms of either anxiety or depression. And sleep can be related to this. So if their sleep patterns have changed and they're not sleeping well, that that could be contributing for sure as well. But uh, women who have had either the premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, the postpartum depression, a history of major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, they might have another recurrence of this or their symptoms might get much worse during menopause. Um, so hopefully if everything is due to menopause for, for any woman, the symptoms should get better a few years after. Um, it's over. So um, it should be transient, but it might not be. That's good to know. I, I would say probably the most common thing that I hear about is just irritability. Mm-hmm. And women say they just don't have patience for little things. And so really reassuring to know that it will get better again. Right. I think, um, you know, I get questions about sexual desire as well, or women tell me, oh, I'm not interested in, in sex at this time. Because, oh, it's an age thing. And, and that's actually not true. So menopause has nothing to do with your sexual desire or the ability to get an orgasm. And I think I think back to the golden girls, <laughs> you know, nothing stopped those ladies. That's right. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, but... At, you know, think of the time of when menopause comes on. A woman is in her like late 40s, early 50s. She's well established in ter- her career, might be due for promotion. She's also probably in the sandwich generation now where she's taking care of her older kids who still live at home or taking care of her parents who are getting older. Um, so, uh, you know, their sleep patterns have changed. Um, I mean, you know, if you've got a lot on your plate, not many people are going to be interested in, in having intercourse. So that could be why sexual desire decreases for other reasons, but it's not from age or menopause itself. What about painful intercourse just because of the dryness? What That certainly can contribute to not wanting or the desire, but certainly treatable. How? What would you recommend for that? So um, there are various... Tr- uh, treatments available. I recommend uh, there are vaginal moisturizers, which I didn't know existed until I started uh, really specializing in this field. Um, and I learned uh, from other physicians to explain it. You know, just like you moisturize your face every day, the same principle applies. So, um, because again, that vaginal dryness it gets progressive or worse as we get older. Um, so it's not going to go away. Um, so vaginal moisturizers, you take like a pea size or a blueberry sized amount and you rub it on the outside and the inside. Um, and then you can use lubricants um, every so often, every few days, whether or not you're having intercourse. And then when you do have intercourse, use as much lubrication as uh, makes you feel good. Do you have any um, recommendations on brands or types to use? Sure. So um, there are... Um, what we have to worry about is that vaginal pH we were talking about before. Um, a lot of these brands actually don't have uh, a good pH profile or what we call osmolality profile. So osmolality is like how much uh, concentrated chemicals, if you will, are in water. So 
Um, when we talk about lubricants, there are water-based lubricants, and those will have osmolality properties and pH. And uh, some of them are not so good. <laughs> they actually can irritate more than they help. So um, the best, uh, Edwards and Panay did a, a study where they looked at all of the pH and the osmolality. I have to give them credit. Um, so they listed out a whole bunch of them and I, I think Good Clean Love and just from talking with patients um, is a brand that seems to work really well as far as uh, water-based goes. There are also oil-based lubricants and silicone-based lubricants. The plus side to these is that they work longer. Um, the downside is that uh, one of them can degrade condoms. So if that's uh, important for you, you should know that. <laughs> Talk to your doctor. Um, so good thing. So oil-based ones could be things like olive oil you have in your house, coconut oil, and I would just recommend using these on the outside. Um, the downside is that these tend to be sloppy. Sure. And then the silicone-based, a good one is Uberlube. So U B E R L U B B E or B E. Um, so that's that's been recommended. Sure. And we can include those names on our on our show notes. Mm -hmm. I will say the only effective treatment for um, the vaginal dryness that actually changes the vaginal cells is topical estrogen. And topical estrogen is very safe. It does not cause any cancer, stroke, heart attack. Um, so uh, it's just absorbed just there at the vagina. It's not absorbed everywhere into the body. Um, unfortunately, the FDA will not take off that black box warning. Uh, the we're right. We're a lot of medical groups are working on doing that, um, but they will not take it off for now. So uh, don't freak out if you see that black box warning. And I know estrogen can be expensive, but that little tube will last you a long time. Yeah, I think um, cost would be the biggest issue that I run into with my patients with those topical estrogen creams. Mm -hmm. uh, but like you said, if they're using it, you know, hopefully only a few times a week after they get started, then it will last. Right. And, you know, with any of these moisturizers or estrogen creams, it can take anywhere from three to six months before you see a noticeable result. These things have been shown to uh, decrease urinary tract infections as well. And sometimes the dryness itself makes a woman feel like um, it's burning mm -hmm. when she urinates. So this this helps relieve that quite a bit. Um, right. I see that all the time with um, the older adults. Of the, my geriatric population, if we just start a little pea-sized amount of the hormone, we certainly improve and decrease their urinary tract symptoms. And the, the urgency and um, leakage symptoms can improve as well. Yep, correct. So, um, and, and you want to make sure that you're applying the estrogen to the outside and the inside. So the urethra is in the vagina. I don't think enough women know that about themselves. I've been surprised. Um, so um, you want to make sure you apply it inside as well. And, um, you know, if that applicator is really painful, throw it away. Use your finger. Uh, sometimes that applicator is more of a mess than anything else. 
Right. In addition to lubricants and topical things, is there anything else that women can do for those vaginal symptoms? Yeah, so if a woman is having um, pain with intercourse or she's having leakage or um, uh, any anything else, like uh, uh, she should consider pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, these therapists are subspecialized in pelvic floor. They really help you hone in onto uh into those muscles they use different things like biofeedback and everything and it's really helpful it it's it's not going to make things worse that's for sure and it should be covered by insurance i haven't really encountered um many issues with that yeah sounds good and i i would say many women get great results with that not necessarily perfection but good Mm -hmm. results i think it's important that they go in to that physical therapy visit knowing that it might be a little bit more invasive than your normal physical therapy visit yes and once you wrap your head around that then it certainly is quite beneficial Mm -hmm. right so i haven't observed any of these sessions but i think and correct me if i'm wrong if you've seen this but sometimes when they're doing biofeedback they'll actually ask women to contract certain muscles and then the therapist will check those muscles so might that might involve kind of a pelvic exam to check those muscles and see help them activate the right muscles yes and and they might use different probes as well um you know some women they're so dry or tight that they might need dilators. Sometimes women have had hysterectomies or they've had gynecological cancers, which they've had radiation. So we need to kind of stretch open the vagina a little bit or help make it a little bit deeper um, so that they're not in such discomfort. Sure. Yeah. So like Lindsay said, go in open-minded to those sessions and just be aware that it can be a little more invasive, but these therapists are very well trained in what they're doing. Yes. Um, There is a great book. um, It's called Beyond Kegels. It's by Janet Hulme. um, And it's a very good book. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon, I think. Um, And she, uh, the most confusing chapter is the anatomy chapter which is it's pelvic floor anatomy is very confusing and complex you've got your sex organs next to your bladder next to your uh you know rectum and so uh a lot's going on there um but otherwise they have exercises in the back of the book and and other things you can do like changing what you're drinking or how much and uh you know bladder voiding and training stuff like that excellent thank you and we'll again include that in the show notes for today so if you want to check out these resources you sure can so when might be a time that actual oral hormone replacement is indicated so um i'm gonna so hormone replacement therapy i'm gonna shorten that to hrt probably for the rest of this um it's uh, it's indicated if a woman is having severe hot flashes or uh, hot flashes where they're really interfering with her quality of life. We can also use it for um, the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, so that vaginal dryness if the topical treatments are not working. We could potentially use it for osteoporosis treatment, but that's um, not a primary indication. That's something that we really make on an individual basis. Uh, so that 
uh, you would talk with your doctor about. But And before, I guess, moving on to the oral hormone replacement, what are things, are there other types of medications we can use for the hot, uncomfortable hot flashes? So um, one of, you know, the over-the-counter medications is black cohosh. Um, some women have success with this, but about maybe 30% do. Um, and it, it can affect your liver. So if you are on medications that go through your liver, um, you shouldn't take it. Uh, I know some women with breast cancer are on breast cancer medications like tamoxifen or um, anestrozole, and they might have hot flashes. I do not recommend it for them because those medications work through the liver. Also, if you like um, your alcohol, um, you know, which is which is fine. Um, I don't recommend the black cohosh just because of potential interactions. Um, there's also there's tons of what they call bioidenticals over the counter, or there's supplements that are like marketed for her and um, you know what I, I don't I can't even tell you the different names. Some of them are really <laughs> funny um they tend to have a lot of soy in it so um that's what they think is working for like estrogen to help with the symptoms um these are not proven to work um you definitely talk to your doctor most of them are not going to be harmful necessarily but again these are supplements they're not fda approved or regulated so we can't say that they will work we can't recommend them necessarily um so i don't tend to recommend them for any of my patients save your money <laughs> yeah and you mentioned bioidenticals i get that question a lot can you talk a little bit more about those sure so bioidenticals it's like this great marketing term that people have used um, to sell either like compounded hormones where they make it into um like a lotion or a patch or an oil of some sort and women rub it in their arm or there's even a pellet that they can insert into the hip. Um, so these are not FDA regulated. Again, you know, they're a mixture of different things. There's no guarantee you're actually getting what is being um, put on the label. Um, a lot of times uh, these boutique clinics or compounding pharmacies will have you get tons of blood tests to test hormone levels. Um, they're, you don't need that. Um, and it's it could be quite dangerous. There, A lot of studies have shown that some of the compounding pharmacies are either not putting anything in that they're telling you or they're putting way too much in where it's dangerous. And I don't know, I wouldn't want to take that risk, so... Yeah, I think it would be um, a lot safer to discuss these things with your primary care provider. And, um, you know, if you're going to take hormone replacement, then take actual hormone replacement. Right. I think recently, too, the FDA recalled the pellet. Um, and I'm not, um, this might not apply to transgender patients. Their hormone therapy is very different. I want to make that very clear. I'm just talking about uh, menopausal patients. What about treatment um, for the menopausal symptoms with a medication, other prescription medications? Do you do any of that or is there recommendation for like gabapentin or the effexors? Um, so um, the only uh, FDA approved non-hormonal medication is paroxetine. 
uh, for hot flashes or Paxil. Um, this is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or an SSRI. Um, I my, It's very effective. Um, unfortunately, a common side effect is weight gain. <laughs> I don't know many women who want that side effect. So um, it's, it's not one I tend to go to right away. I, I, desfenlafaxine or Pristique is one uh, medication that was specifically made for hot flashes. Um, this is also in that antidepressant category. Um, its cousin is venlafaxine. Um, so that desfenlafaxine, I just have trouble getting it covered by insurance. Uh, frustrating. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I've had a I've had pretty good success with venlafaxine mm-hmm. or Effexor. It tends to work really well. You know, I know these these medications can be in that antidepressant category, but um, we're not using them necessarily at the same doses, and uh, we're not uh, using them for that purpose. So uh, keep in mind that there's tons of serotonin receptors on the thermostat of the brain, if you will. So um, this is why we use these medications because they work on serotonin. Yeah, and I would say I've had pretty good results using venlafaxine or Effexor mm-hmm. for hot flashes. Most women do notice an improvement. Right. Other good ones, gabapentin is a pretty good one that works on the GABA receptors. And if a woman has like chronic pain or she's having trouble sleeping or you know, nerve issues, then that might be a a pretty good one um, to do. Clonidine is another one that's an alpha blocker. So if a woman has high blood pressure, I might put her on that one if she's not already on something for her blood pressure. Let's talk again about hormone therapy and, um, you know, who, who can take hormone therapy? Who should be considered for hormone replacement therapy? Sure. So, um, Women who have very bad hot flashes or very bad uh, GSM, the urinary tract symptoms, vaginal dryness, they should be the ones who should be considered for hormone replacement therapy. We should, it should be started around the age of menopause, so in that 40s to 50s time period, preferably within five years of that last menstrual period. Um, our general principle for prescribing that is to do the lowest dose for the shortest um, amount of time needed. Now, a, there's a lot of research going on because a lot of studies have come out clarifying some previous research um, that made a lot of people worry about hormone replacement therapy causing heart disease and heart attacks. Um, we've we've kind of shown that if we started at the right time, with, so within that 10 years of your last menstrual period, preferably within five, um, it's pretty safe to use. And after using the hormone therapy for five years, you actually have a, a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, so it, it actually might be helpful. And that's because, you know, you still have some estrogen around that time. So the cholesterol, your, women don't have as much plaque cholesterol plaque as they would later in life. Um, So that's one reason uh, their blood vessels tend to be bouncier, uh, which is better for blood pressures. So so it could be good for heart health. It should not be used for that indication, but it could be helpful actually. 
Sure. And you mentioned it should be started within five years of the last menstrual period. Mm-hmm. Why? What happens if it started later than that? So uh, again, that, that plaque, that cholesterol plaque can um, really build up quite quickly after that last menstrual period. So five years out, you could be at higher risk for having high cholesterol. And the estrogen, what it does is it destabilizes that plaque. Um, and and it does so especially in the first year of taking it. So, um, you know, your cardiovascular risk might be higher that first year. And so if you're older and you have more plaque, there's a higher risk of having some heart issues with that sure um so again age tends to be on on your side if you start it younger so the timing is important and kind of eliminates any risk that we found in prior studies correct and we're right now we're calling this the timing hypothesis um so uh that's what we're calling it right now 10 years from now who knows uh women might be on hormone replacement therapy all the time (laughs) Um, you know, but uh, it's it's hard to say, but we've definitely made a huge difference uh, or huge advancements from the early 2000s when a big study came out. It was the WHI study or the Women's Health Initiative, which looked to see if hormone therapy could be used for primary prevention of certain things like heart disease and cancers. And unfortunately, the media uh, leaked out the results before they were really uh, interpreted correctly. So, uh, you know, if you, we looked at the women in those groups as a whole, yes, there was an increased risk, but they were, many of them were much older. They were in their 60s or 70s, which women tend to have higher risk of heart disease at that age. Um, but if we uh, separated out the 50-year-olds, they actually had a lower risk. So that's why we think the timing hypothesis is important. Um, and, and several other studies have shown that. The, the Nurses Health Study, which is a huge observational study that's been going on for decades, um, this has also shown that women started on hormone replacement therapy younger uh, tend to have less heart issues than those who were started at much older. Yeah, thank you. That's really good information. And I think probably will change the perspective of many who remember the study from 2000, which showed the poorer outcomes. Right. Yeah, it was unfortunate. It's it's It really showed how powerful media can be in misinterpreting uh, scientific data. And it really changed everything. I mean, women were being like stripped from their hormones and now we have significant osteoporosis which probably could have been prevented if they stayed on it or were given it and um, you know there is a decreased risk of certain cancers on this too um, like ovarian cancer Um, some studies showed a decreased risk of colon cancer it might not have been a huge decrease but some Um, and there's some studies showing that it could affect memory for better or for worse to be determined still yes okay yeah it's a little controversial yeah and we'll try to keep updates coming as we find them what about the risk of breast cancers so i before we before i go into that i want to make sure that um there's, there's two different types of hormone replacement therapy, and one is called combination therapy, and that's estrogen with a type of progesterone, 
and that is used for women who still have their uterus. So the progesterone is there to prevent that endometrial lining buildup. And the endometrium is the inside of the uterus, so we don't want that layer to build up like it does in menstruating women. Correct. So if you don't have a uterus, um, then we don't have to worry about that. So we just can use estrogen products like estradiol. So um, that WHI study, they've re-evaluated that data as well. And what it showed is that women who were on the uh, single estradiol therapy did not have as much of a risk of breast cancer as those that were on the combination therapy. But that risk is still really small. Um, It's maybe one in about 7,000, which is about the same if a woman has one glass of wine every night. It's about the same risk of having breast cancer if you're on hormone therapy, which I think is interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, The progesterone changes the breast about after four years of being on this treatment. So um, it's not going to cause cancer right away. Um, I mean, I, I can't say for sure if it's like you have an undetected genetic mutation, like a BRCA gene you don't know about. I can't say for that one. Um, but uh, f- for women who don't have genetic uh, predisposition, predisposition yeah. um, it shouldn't change the breast tissue right away. So we start to see changes on a mammogram about four years after being on hormone replacement therapy. So for women who maybe have a family history of breast cancer but don't have any known genetic mutations, is hormone replacement therapy still an option? Yes. So it's not a complete contraindication. Um, It's safe to use. If you have a family history of stroke or blood clots, it's also safe to use. Um, So women who should not use any estrogen therapy are women who have had a stroke or a blood clot or pulmonary embolism. And um, we typically don't use it in women who have heart disease already. Uh, But again, we can talk about that. Um, Studies show that it may be safe if a woman is already on a a statin or cholesterol medication, which stabilizes that plaque, um, and a beta blocker. It may be safe if, if her symptoms are really significant and nothing else is working. So for most women, it's an option at least to be discussed whether or not they decide to move ahead with it. Yeah, majority of women. Okay, Mm -hmm. good. And, uh, you know, topical estrogen, if women have breast cancer, we can still use it. Again, that doesn't cause any cancer. It's just local. I use it for many women with breast cancer. Um, A lot of the oncology societies in both America and Canada say it's okay. We can always talk to your oncologist mm-hmm. to just double check, um, but typically we we can use it with, uh, yeah. you know, not feeling uneasy or worried about it. Yeah, I would say um, I often will send a message to the oncologist when I have patients with vaginal dryness or some other symptom we want to treat, and I don't think I've received a no response. You know, it's it's usually fine to go ahead with vaginal estrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the different modes of um, receiving the hormone replacement therapy? Sure. So there's the conventional pill form. Um, there's the patch. Um, I like the patch because it bypasses the liver metabolism. So this is associated with less 
blood clot risk. It's great for women who have had gastric bypass, who might have some absorption issues, um, or just forget to take a pill every day. <laughs> um, sometimes we have problems with that sticky adhesive, but there's ways to, to get around that. Um, so it's it's generally well tolerated and just as effective. Um, other uh, delivery methods for HRT would be um, a nuver like a a ring. Uh, that we can insert in the vagina. So this is the only vaginal uh, hormone therapy that uh, has a big enough dose to be effective for hot flashes. Um, so that's the only exception to that. Uh, to that. Um, so and it, so that's comparable to oral replacement in terms of the risks and the benefits and yes. side effects. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So again, if a woman has some issues absorbing medications. Um, or the adhesive doesn't stick, uh, then yes, that vaginal um, estrogen uh, ring could be uh, used. Um, Some women, I use an estrogen tablet or patch, and they might have an IUD or an intrauterine device that's progesterone only. I really like that method, especially around the time that women could be um, still fertile, which can happen. very rare, but it can happen. You can get pregnant if you're perimenopausal. So an IUD could be a great method for that. It's long-term, could be anywhere from three to seven years. Um, And then I would just add that estrogen tablet Mm -hmm. or patch. Sure. There are also top like creams or gels that can be used um, that are available. So there's a few different methods to get hormone therapy. And hormone replacement therapy is different than just oral contraceptive pills or OCPs for like younger women because it has a lower dose of estrogen. So let's say you're a woman who's been on OCPs or birth control for a long time and you're starting to reach your later 40s, um, you should start transitioning to a lower dose um, estrogen. Um, again, you're uh, you want that decreased risk of um, a blood clot. That's what we're worried about. Um, so we should go to the lower dose of estrogen. Do you have any comments on the weight gain that occurs during and perimenopause and postmenopausal? So before menopause, uh, men and women typically gain about one pound per year if they don't do anything to change their diet or their activity level. For postmenopausal women, it tends to be about two pounds per year. Not great. And I have some women who, on top of that, might gain 10 pounds. Uh, so, and, and the body shape changes too. So, all of that, um, all the fat cells are moving from your bottom to your belly. So, that's why older women tend to have a more, um, it's an apple shape than a pear shaped. So unfortunately, it's that belly fat that we worry about, that insulin resistance or prediabetes, um, and we worry about some other issues as well, like high blood pressure and things. So um, exercise, ladies, exercise. Yeah, and I think you just being attentive to the fact that the metabolism does change and calorie requirements are going to decrease around that menopausal time. Correct, yes. I think it's also... 
um, helpful to increase, um, so do more strengthening things at that time, increase your muscle mass to help with that metabolism. Yes. Um, having a good diet, healthy diet, and exercising is going to help pretty much everything in menopause. Um, the hot flashes, the bone health, the urinary control, um, sleep, mood, everything. So if, if you're not getting a good diet, exercise, or sleep, then that's where you should focus uh, your, your efforts if you can. And so would you recommend starting with those things before even looking at medications? It really depends on how severe the symptoms are. So um, un- unfortunately, some larger women tend to have um, worse hot flashes um, so and, and worse urinary incontinence as well. Uh, so, you know, they might need hormone replacement therapy for that. And, and, you know, hormone replacement therapy could potentially help with weight control, but it doesn't for every woman. So I can't recommend doing that just for that. Sure. Um, remember, the only two indications for hormone replacement therapy is hot flashes and the vaginal dryness. And I think it's such a good point that daily regular exercise can really improve upon symptoms of hot flashes. Yes. Um, So hot flashes might get worse initially when you start exercising, but over time they get much better. Um, So so continue to exercise. Um, There are other things too that you can do to help control hot flashes that are non-medication, like um, wearing multiple layers, (laughs) Um, uh, getting a fan if you need, keeping your bedroom cool at night uh, could be helpful. Uh, decreasing alcohol. So alcohol can bring on or make hot flashes worse, more frequent, more intense. Um, And smoking for sure can also do that. Um, Certain hot beverages and caffeine can also bring on hot flashes. So if you need to kind of change how much coffee or pop you're drinking, uh, now is the time to do it. <laughs> pop is terrible for your bones as well. Right. <laughs> so. More than one reason to change. And the caffeine is going to affect the urinary symptoms too. Yes, it is. But all, all of that, are they're all bladder irritants. Mm-hmm. So, um, so those are important. Other thing too is stress management. So sometimes people get in stressful situations and they might have a hot flash then. What a what an inopportune time, right? Right. <laughs> Women are just like, oh, one more thing, yes. right? Yes. Um, so that's why mindfulness has actually um, been shown to work as well um, in cognitive behavioral therapy or meeting with like a, someone who's trained in helping you change your behaviors by thinking in a different way. I don't know how better to explain that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that has been proven to work. It, um, it may decrease the severity, uh, potentially the frequency, but it's going to decrease the severity of the hot flash. That's pretty incredible, really, that a lot can be done for hot flashes without medications, just through exercise or mindfulness or biofeedback. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're, we're looking at hormone therapy only if everything else has not been effective or effective enough. Sure. So Jean Marie, is there any good news when it comes to menopause? Absolutely. 
So actually, when women were surveyed, majority of women actually showed a positive outlook on menopause. So not every woman will have every symptom or it won't be as severe. Some women have none, which is very nice. Um, so one thing, you don't have periods anymore. So that's nice. Yes, <laughs> right? I think that's great. Maybe yeah. a money saver, not having to buy menstrual products. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, those are real annoying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, other things, too, is um, some women find their migraines get a lot better. Actually, majority of women, there's only 10% of women where their migraines might get worse after menopause. So that leaves a huge amount of women where it's going to get better. And some autoimmune diseases could potentially also uh, get a little bit better around menopause. So um, the rheumatoid arthritis or the lupus might get a little bit um, better. That is good news. Good thing. Think some things to look forward to. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think we've covered a lot of great information about the perimenopausal and menopausal time. So I really appreciate you coming and talking with us. I really enjoyed doing this. Yeah. Thanks so much for being our guest today. Hopefully we can get you back another time for another women's health topic. Absolutely. So if anybody has any other questions on menopause, I recommend looking at the North American Menopause Society's website. They are the professional organization, um, professional medical organization that puts out many of the guidelines and does a lot of the research on menopause. Their website is www.menopause.org. They have tons of resources for you. They also have resources on how to find a menopause certified practitioner. So these are uh, people, either physicians or PAs or NPs or even psychiatrists or psychologists who have um, taken a special test every uh, few years um, to make sure that they're up to date on the um, current recommendations on menopause management. Excellent. Thank you. And again, these resources will all be in our show notes for you to take a look at. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. Any health pearls today, Kirsten? Yeah, so I think we should just uh, re-emphasize one of the points that Jean Marie brought up. Um, you know, she really she talked about treating vaginal dryness um, and the importance of treating it kind of like the skin, where you put on daily moisturizer, and it's really important as you age, especially and go you know move past menopause, to continue to treat that area too and uh, maintain moisture and health down there. It helps prevent UTIs, helps prevent other symptoms. So. One of the moisturizers that she mentioned was called Good Clean Love, and we'll have a link for that in our show notes if you want to look it up too. We'll list a few others as well. Um, and she mentioned that that has a good pH balance. It's usually not irritating and um, can help maintain that moisture. I think that's a really great health pro. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you have any follow-up questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email. We're at mail at everythingdoc.com. You can also find our website for past episodes and show notes. We're at www.everythingdoc.com. Please uh, find us on Spotify, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts to listen to past episodes. And um, if you like us, um, then it helps get information out there for the rest of us. And you can certainly comment 
um, and, and give future recommendations for episodes or things you'd like to know. And another way to help us out is to share with family and friends. You can also leave us a rating or a review at your um, place where you get your podcasts. Helps others find out about us too. So we appreciate that very much. Well, you can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And there too, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.